0: Good morning. Now, those of you that have exceptionally good memories might be able to recall that four weeks ago I was standing up here and I talked about spiritual growth. To grow or not to grow. That was the question. And I mentioned one of the things I talked about was resilience. Do you remember? The growth is in the grit. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm picking up the theme of resilience this morning, of getting through. Many of us, many of you, are living in tough and uncertain times. It can be difficult to look beyond what's currently happening in our lives and see the light at the end of the tunnel, or even find the tunnel. Whether we're going through a big life change, financial shocks, or personal health concerns, What is there that can help us to work our way through these challenges? That's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Today's big question, how can I cope? How can I get through? How can I have hope? And how can hope help me? How can I get through? Shall we pray? Now, whether for you this is a, Lord, speak, for your servant is listening, or whether this is a prayer which goes, God, if you're real, if you're there, please speak to me. Just want to encourage you. Open your ears. Open your mind. Open your heart. Lord, speak because we're listening. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to try and answer this question, how can I get through, in two parts, which I'll call present hope and future hope. We have cause for present hope when we remember who God is and what he is like. Firstly, He loves you. He loves you. You know, quite often when I'm really struggling with what am I, you know, what am I supposed to say in a sermon, quite often I stop and I pray and I kind of hear the voice of God's Spirit and he just says, tell them about my love. Tell them about my love. He loves you and he's for you. He's not against you. He so loves you that he came to earth to rescue you, to give you hope, we read perhaps famously in that passage in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he so loves you, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, shall have new life shall have a life of hope. Or we know that God loves you and he wants to bring you to himself. He wants to reconcile you. We read, for God was in Christ reconciling the world, put your name in there, reconciling you to him. No longer counting people's sins against them. Again, he is all-powerful, and he is, in spite of everything that you might think or might appear otherwise, he is in control. He is God Almighty, El Shaddai. In, in Jeremiah, we read 32 verse 17, our Lord God, you have made the heavens, Jeremiah cries out, and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for God. Do you know, he notices and knows every little detail of your life. We read about that in Psalm 139, that before a word is on your lips, he knows it altogether. He knows every anxious thought. He knows you and he notices and he cares for you. We're encouraged, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares about you. He loves and he values you, so much so that he wants a relationship with you. Not a casual, nodding relationship, but an intimate personal relationship, not just a friendship, more like a marriage. As I talked about last month, the central controlling idea of Christianity is to be one with Jesus, to be in him and him in us, united with him. When I married Julie, I made some promises Do you remember? I hope and I believe I am keeping them all. I gave her my promises. We read in in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, and I'm going to paraphrase, that God has given us his very great and precious promises. He's given us great and precious promises to rescue us from the corruption of the world that we're living in, to rescue us from the materialism, the secularism, the selfishness, the me, me, me of the corrupt world in which we are living. He's given us his precious, great and precious promises, and the Bible is full of them. For example, he promises to give us strength. In Isaiah 41 verse 10, we read that he promises to be with us. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Can you hear God this morning saying to you, fear not, because I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my victorious right arm. God promises to be with you and to strengthen you, to help you. And I'm going to tell you, I've been holding on to that promise. I've been laying that promise out before God. I've been reminding him of that promise and claiming that promise for a very long time. And it makes a huge difference to me when I'm facing really what I find a great big challenge is to know God has promised to be with me. He's promised to strengthen me. And my experience is that he's faithful. And he's faithful too to forgive us. He promises, 1 John 1 1.9, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, on the subject of these promises, I, I've told you before that it was when I was 25 and working in the city, I had a good job. God told me, no, nope, I want you to be a teacher. Go to college for four years. But I, I've got two little children, a wife at home and a big fat mortgage. And he gave me Matthew 6.33. but It's like the disciples say to Jesus, if we follow you, what will we wear and what will we eat and where will we sleep? And Jesus tells them seek first God's kingdom, make it your first priority to do God's will and in all these other things will be yours as well and I took God at his word, gave up my job, went to college, got a tiny little grant that didn't cover the standing orders but also actually incidentally continued to tithe, to take a tenth of the grant that didn't cover the, the standing orders and honour God with the first fruits of my income, that's the principle, God first, and experienced his extraordinary faithfulness. And a little prior to that, in my earlier 20s, I'd invested a bit of time actually in taking some of God's promises and burying them in my heart. I memorised them. That was a little investment that has yielded to me, half a century, 15 years, 50 years of dividends that I've been able to benefit from, from that little investment of memorising some of God's promises, of hiding them in my heart, like that promise to be with me, to strengthen me, the promise of provision. So, for example, in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son How shall he not also, together with him, give us all things? Or, as appears on the screen now, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8 God is able, here comes God's promise God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that you may always have enough of everything and provide in abundance for every good work. Now, that verse is it's in the context actually of giving but it's a great promise and one of the ways that I've found hope throughout my life and certainly for the last 50 years since I memorized a whole collection of promises is to claim God's truth and his promises to me and if you want to invest a bit of time I've put on the piano at the back there a collection of 12 of God's precious, great and precious promises. You're welcome to take one and do the same. Make a little effort. Memorise God's promises. There's great hope and encouragement to be found in them. We have great cause for present hope because of who God is and what he's like. We need to keep reminding ourselves of who he is, what he's like, that God is faithful That he's committed to us but we also have cause for future hope. What do you believe about the future? What do you really believe? Not the near or the medium but the far future. What we really believe about our ultimate future has a huge and profound impact on how we live our daily lives, how we deal with setbacks, suffering, grief, money, and so on. Imagine two women. They have absolutely the same job, the same menial tasks and bad working conditions, long hours, but one of them is promised 15,000 pounds for a year's work, and the other is promised 15 million pounds for a year's work. Or imagine two men both serving the same 10-year prison sentence but one of them has a beautiful young wife who loves him and two small children. The other has no one. Now do you think that those two women or those two men are going to approach their work and their day just the same? No, why not? because they're not processing what they're living through on their present circumstances. They're hugely affected in how they get through each day by what they believe the future holds for them. Our present behavior, our mindset, our worldview, how we face each day, how we get through is strongly determined by what we believe our ultimate future to be. Or to put it simply, whether our ultimate future gives us hope. You know, we're not very well served by our English word hope because it has a kind of connotation of uncertainty. Mm, Hope so. The Bible's understanding of hope is a confident and joyful expectation of a future secure within God's eternal love and glory. And a hope like that is life-shaping. A hope like that is life-shaping. What do I mean? Well, let me illustrate. The ancient Roman world was blighted with plagues, and the more so because of the mobility that their roads and their ports and their forever moving soldiers around enabled. In AD 165 for 15 years there was an enormous plague, the Antonine Plague. In urban areas a third of the population died. They knew it was contagious and well people just headed for the hills, leaving the sick literally to die in the streets. But the Christians were different. The Christians became the first kind of public health service. An eyewitness at the time, reported by Suetonius, Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of their neighbour. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them, and many died. And they did so serenely and cheerfully. And when these Christians were persecuted or saw their fellows being put to death unjustly, they didn't respond with terrorism. They didn't respond with violent retaliation or guerrilla warfare. They died praying for their enemies. They died forgiving their enemies. Why were these Christians so compassionate to the sick? Why so forgiving to their persecutors? Were they just nicer people? No, it was because they had a completely different, joyous, life-shaping conviction about their future, about what they hoped for. It was their hope that made the difference. These Christians had an absolute assurance that their ultimate hope was one of infinite personal love within the glory of God. And as Christians, that's what we're signed up for. That's what we're in for. Now, you might be thinking, that all sounds very good, Bri. But seriously, how could anyone be so certain About the future. How could I? The answer and the key to this whole dynamic of Christian hope is one thing. Do you know what that is? It's the fulcrum, the turning point of history. It's the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus gave Christians certainty. And transform their worldview. What do I mean by that? Well, our worldview is how we see the world. It's our philosophy, if you like, of, of what is, of, of what is true, of what is right, what is important, of what matters. And those things don't change overnight. A, a whole society change in worldview takes decades, centuries. I mean, we've seen that, for example, um, racial equality, attitudes to racial equality, to equal opportunities, to the place of women in society, we've seen that change. Those things have changed, but it's taken a hundred years. But thousands of early Christians had a worldview revolution virtually. Overnight. Not a gradual change, not a spectrum of belief. Suddenly, thousands of people all began to believe something that no worldview, no philosophy had ever allowed for in the history of the world. That a man who said things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. In my father's house there are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. A man who was savagely beaten, destroyed, left cold and dead in a sealed tomb, guarded by a detachment of soldiers, walked out alive and physically proved that the things that he said, particularly the things he said about himself, were true. Thousands had their worldview upended and transformed, not over a hundred years, but over days, hours. How did that happen? Well, we're helped to understand how that happened by what St. Paul records for us in his first letter to the Corinthians. He writes, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also, Paul writes, as to one abnormally born. In other words, late. For some, they had one-on-one experiences. For some, it was in a group. For some, it happened repeatedly. For some, it was in a huge group of 500. There were hundreds and hundreds of people who said, we saw him, we talked to him. We put our fingers in the nail prints. People saw him repeatedly. They talked to him. It wasn't just a one-off experience. Paul says, 500 at the same time, most of whom are still living. Why say that? Well, during the, the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, travel was easy. Communications were good. You couldn't possibly claim in a public document, that 500 people had all seen Jesus at once, unless it was true. Hundreds and hundreds said, I saw him, I touched him, I talked to him. This is how Christianity started. We know this. They said to their neighbours, their friends, their relatives, I know it sounds nuts, I know it's not the sort of thing I would have ever believed, it's not even a thing I could have imagined, but I saw him, I talked to him, we saw it. Hundreds of people spoke to thousands of their friends, relatives, neighbours, and as a result, thousands of people became Christians. We know that many of those who said they saw him died, well they were killed because they couldn't unknow what they knew. They couldn't unsee what they'd seen. And if someone says, who's listening to me this morning, well, I can't believe he rose from the dead because as a person of rational thought, my worldview won't allow me to. Well, theirs didn't either. They just allowed the facts to do the work, they just allowed the facts to challenge them, they just allowed the facts to let them see things differently. Do we, do we want to have what they had? When they were told, we're throwing you to the lions, they handled it, they got through. They sang. Now we don't have lions. Not literally. But some of us, some of you, are facing some pretty formidable challenges. You know. You know what you're facing. Health challenges. Family challenges. Financial challenges. Career challenges. Guilt challenges. Forgiveness challenges. Or... It just doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense challenges. I returned this week from visiting my middle daughter and her family in Vancouver. My daughter Becky has a tumour on her cheek that's eating her jaw. Her jaw this side is now like eggshell. Health challenges. My youngest daughter Susie, her younger daughter, returned from Ontario, um, middle of last year, looking like a rake. Fourteen and four stone, because she couldn't keep anything in. Fortunately, thanks to prayer, thanks to the care of our NHS, she's looking a whole lot better now and has been probably properly diagnosed actually with with Crohn's disease, we have health challenges, we don't face lions but some of us face lumps. Whatever it was, they got through it. They didn't get through it by wishful thinking, they didn't get through it by saying, well it would be wonderful if... They didn't get through by wishful thinking. They got through by thinking. They got their hope not through wishful thinking, but through reality thinking. They must have sat down and said, why would these people say that that these things happened? Could this be a conspiracy theory? No, no. People don't die for conspiracy theories. Could this be a hallucination? No, 500 people don't all have the same hallucination. (laughs) They didn't get their hope through wishful thinking, they got it through thinking. And we can too. Someone might say, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I just can't believe it. But in that case, They've got to come up with a historically feasible explanation for the incredible shift of worldview of thousands and thousands of people, who said, who saw them, they, who say they saw him. They've got to come up with a historically feasible and reasonable alternative explanation for the birth and the phenomenal growth. Of the Christian church. In the first century AD, Christianity, that the church was a little Galilean sect of Jews. In the second century, you have the Antonine Plague. In the third century, you have the Cyprian plague. In the fourth century, Christianity is the major religion in the world. Something happened that caused that to happen. People saw a crucified saviour walking alive. Now, if you can't believe it, you've got to come up with a phenomenal explanation for the birth and growth of the church. And do you know what? No one ever has. Now, is it enough to just know these things, that Jesus is alive, that he conquered, that he conquered death, that he rose, that he's coming again, that there will be new heavens and a new earth and we'll be there. Is it enough to know these things as great Christian truths? No, it's not enough to know it, we need to experience it. It's not the intellectual belief, it's the experience of those truths. We need to take hold of them, we need to appropriate them, we need to live them. What counts isn't the idea of hope, it's the experience of hope. What do I mean by that? Nicky Gumbel, in one of the Alpha Talks, speaks about a woman that he would often see walking around Kensington with a shopping trolley, full of her stuff. Full of shopping bags, full of stuff. She lived on the street. And one day she died. And Nicky was asked to conduct her funeral. And he was kind of imagining that this would be a very small affair. It would just be probably him and a coffin. But actually the church began to fill with quite well-dressed people. And it turns out that This lady owned a flat in Kensington, but she didn't live in it. She owned riches, but she lived poor, even though it was killing her. She had it, but she wouldn't draw on it. She owned wealth, but she didn't possess it. She didn't take hold of the good news that she'd inherited great wealth wealth. What if Dave and Anna would like to start moving to the front and the team? Or imagine a ragged orphan child in Dickensian London who's adopted by a loving wealthy family but insists every morning on returning to his begging pitch. It makes no sense to know these great truths and not live out of the hope they give us what we are putting our hope in affects everything. It affects how we view our money, how we view our bills, how we face sickness and setbacks, how we use our time, how we view our careers, our marriages, our health. Our hope affects everything. However dismal or desperate, Things may appear. There is hope. There is hope. And it's life-changing. And it's rock-solid. And it starts, it starts by encountering Jesus. You know, those early Christians, they weren't, it wasn't a question of a relationship between a person and an ideology. It was a relationship between a person and a person to living things, you and Jesus, you and the living God. It starts with encountering Jesus and you can do that this morning. And if that's you, we'd love to pray with you. Amen. Thank you.